Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Okay, let's get into some wonderful questions. These are all pretty much fitness-oriented. Some came from listeners of the Get Over Yourself podcast. Thank you. Uh, Some are success stories and inspiring comments. So we're just going to flow. We're going to connect today and amazingly all over the world. Thank you for telling me where you're from when you write your question. Please continue to do so. First one is Tori from Wales. From Wales. I'm loving your Get Over Yourself podcast. I love the breather episodes. Oh, thanks for the plug. All right. Cross-promoting. Perfect for readjusting my mind for the day. Those are the short episodes. So if you're in the mood for listening to a long one, you go to town. If you have a short commute or something, pop one in. Yeah, I like them too. Thanks. Anyway, uh, Tori's talking about the math approach all the way over in Wales. The math approach to training is to do less, ease off, and result in better overall performance. We know that it works if we persevere. It really works, but it's difficult to get our heads around the notion. And here's Tori getting deep with a little philosophy. I wonder if the math approach could and should be used in other aspects of our lives, both singularly and on larger socioeconomic scales. Could this work? Think about technology, where we have so much of it and we've come so far in a short space of time, but we've drowned ourselves and are not able to cope with all the technology we have. We're becoming a world of needing to rely on technology, drowning in social media feeds, and no longer able to function or socialize in a normal way. We are chronically looking at tech, social media, the latest trends that people are getting, addictions resulting in withdrawal. Similarly, at workplace, we're chronically overworking, overstressed, which leads, of course, to cortisol issues, heart problems, insomnia, and all that caffeine to power through. Gosh, it's so sad to hear this uh, happening in Wales as well, instead of just America or wherever you're listening from. These are only brief thoughts, but they're definitely true in the fact that if we are chronically over blank, fill in the blank, overworked, overtrained, overeating, overstressed, overreliant on social media, and yet we know the answers are to slow down. We're getting more and more miserable and distant from happiness homeostasis. Could it be that the answer is to apply the math approach to slow down, do less, avoid chronic, And while the world might slow down a notch if everyone took four-day work weeks or had a designated day of total relaxation, would the world not potentially be a better place? Would we possibly be able to then, after a period of time, realize that the technology we've learned and built is still there, but we don't need to be inundated in it 24-7? In order to go forward as a better functioning and healthier world, should we actually look to go backwards in our approach? Wow, very, very interesting, nice message. And let's particularly focus on that analogy of the the training patterns and slowing down, lowering your heart rate uh, to improve as an aerobic athlete and apply that to the workplace in particular. I feel like when we're maxed out all the time and slammed with our inbox populating trying to get through the day, but so much stimulation is coming through with the instant chat messages and the phone calls and the emails and the live interpersonal people dropping into your office. It seems as though 
we can possibly experience diminished cognitive performance, critical thinking, prioritization, focusing. There's so much research on the idea that multitasking is actually an illusion and that the brain is literally incapable of concentrating on two things at once. So the illusion of multitasking is what's happening is you're rapidly shifting your attention back and forth, back and forth from the text message to the person that's talking in your office or from driving the car uh, to the phone call. And I read some research recently. We all know how terrible texting and driving is. I also read that simply conversing on the phone while driving uh, adds an extreme uh, increase in danger and risk on the road because you're having to process the information from the speaker and formulate a response in your brain. So your brain is occupied when you're on a telephone conversation at a different level than it might be, for example, listening to programming like a podcast or the radio or music. So that's passive, just like uh, when you're watching TV at home, you're in a passive state as opposed to engaging with email or playing a video game. And so the argument is when you're driving, uh, maybe that should be time devoted to listening to podcasts, listening to music, rather than carrying on a conversation. And I can totally reference this when I'm on the phone talking, even if it's a casual conversation. And for example, I'm uh, taking the phone call as I leave the home. I will commonly engage in totally spacey behavior, like getting to my car without my keys or without my shoes or leaving something on the roof of the car as I drive away and then hear the noise of the uh, the tea mug dropping onto the ground <laughs> because I'm engaged in the phone call rather than totally present. And this stress, the stress, the hidden stress impact of multitasking is turning out to be huge. There's some good commentary on this in in the recent re-release of the Primal Blueprint. And we also talk about it in the upcoming book, Keto for Life, due to be released in late 2019. Mark Sisson and I are so excited to get that out there and leverage the ketogenic lifestyle, the metabolic flexibility that you build from low-carb, primal paleo, keto-style eating into the comprehensive lifestyle goal and approach toward longevity. So that's called keto for life. But this multitasking thing is really uh, fatiguing, distracting, and diminishing cognitive performance, scientifically proven. So back to the uh, story from Tori in Wales. Yeah, what if we slowed down and did one thing at a time, for example, or took that space in the workday to just sit back and stare out the window for a minute or 30 seconds if you can't spare a minute, or getting up from your desk and walking around. And fortunately, I have a home work environment, so I can go out and do crazy stuff in the middle of my workday that might not be appropriate for many people in a high-rise, such as hauling off a set of deadlifts or a set of pull-ups or hitting some chips with my golf club and uh, putting my brain into a different state, uh, getting it uh, refreshed and recalibrated to go back into the peak performance mode when I'm sitting in front of a screen. Uh, fantastic um, comments here about applying the math approach to all uh, manner of everyday life. So then Jim is writing in from Ohio, 55 years old, building a dream house on a two-acre pond where he grew up. How about that, people? Grow up, go forth, live your life, and then return to that pond 
and build a dream house. Very cool. Good luck with the dream house project. And Jim says, I'm hoping to be carried out of this place in 30 to 45 years. Love that. 55 plus 45 is 100. That's not bad. I'm going for 123. I don't know about you guys. Not 180 like Dave Asprey. Uh, no thanks. And um, just trying to stay reasonable and realistic here, knowing that the current Guinness World Record for longevity by the amazing Jean Calmont of France is 122 years old. Go on YouTube and search for her, Jean, J-E-A-N-N-E, Calmont, C-A-L-M-E-N-T. There's an interview with her when she was 119, very sharp and spicy, and uh, answering the interviewer's questions about uh, when she sold uh, pencils to Van Gogh in her father's art shop when she was a little girl. Said Van Gogh was rude and smelled like alcohol and <laughs> all these insights from this old lady. There's a little bit of uh, controversy now in the centenarian uh, realm, FYI, and that is that some of these pockets of longevity that are identified, including the uh, famous Blue Zones project, they happen to be associated with poor birth records. So they're identifying a correlation between frequency of centenarians and the poor birth record keeping. How about that? Yes, Ikaria, Sardinia, all these wonderful longevity populations. Everyone here is over 100. <laughs> when were you born? I was born in the winter of many rains. So not to discount all the great research or not to discount the idea that there's a lot of old people walking around uh, looking healthy, modeling that youthful spirit, which is perhaps the number one longevity factor uh, that we have identified yet. Uh, Deepak Chopra started talking about this decades ago, that youthful spirit is a more profound longevity factor than some perfect diet or hardcore exercise routine uh, or what have you. Uh, that with uh, also the social connections and healthy social environment is a huge longevity factor. So we're putting that all together with the diet and the exercise and the movement objectives uh, in the book Keto for Life. So Back to Jean Calmont, 122. I figured it's easy as one, two, three. Might as well strive for a new record. Another Guinness record. <clears throat> uh, but if that's unrealistic to you, then you're probably right. And this is taking us over to uh, my new favorite guy, Dr. Bruce Lipton, Biology of Belief. Life-changing book. I'm just thinking about this all the time now and referencing it in a lot of the short uh, breather shows that I do on Get Over Yourself podcast. But his notion that your thoughts uh, determine your cellular reality and influence cellular and genetic function at all times is so powerful and highly validated by science, not some woo-woo guy uh, talking out on the rocks in Sedona. Uh, no offense to the rocks in Sedona, the vortexes and all that great energy stuff. This is a guy that's coming from uh, the traditional medical environment, medical school professor, a longtime uh, scholar of cellular biology, and identifying and proving that our thoughts influence our cellular function at all times. We can all reference this to be true with some of the examples that Dr. Lipton brings up, such as if you're uh, tired, cranky, miserable, stuck in a rutten life, and then you meet someone exciting, and uh, over the ensuing six months you fall in love, everything changes, your cellular function, your hormonal function, your energy, your outlook on life change in an instant, in a snap, even on the uh, first date or whatever 
whatever the example might be, where you can transform. Same with, I like this reference of uh, having a long, uh, tired, exhausting day, and oops, I forgot tonight was the party. Oh, gosh, I don't want to go. Okay, we'll just go for an hour and you know say hi and then get out of there and uh, come home and rest. And you get there. And you uh, have some good social connections and the energy in the room is great and you're having fun and pretty soon four hours go by and you're not the slightest bit tired or fatigued or any of those sensations you experienced uh, before at the moment that you walked into the party. So we have tremendous control over our biology that we don't realize. And when we form these intentions in our mind, such as I intend to live to be 123, or I intend to follow a different path than the early demise that came to my relatives and uh, disengage or reject that notion that family history and the genetic predisposition toward heart disease, obesity, cancer, diabetes is going to uh, determine my fate as well. So you can reject these things and form new beliefs. And if those beliefs are real and they're strong, then they will manifest. And if you don't deeply believe it deep down, then you got a problem. Uh, I heard Dr. Lipton talking on the Lifestylist podcast uh, with Luke as the host. Great show. He's got a lot of good guests. And he was, uh, Luke was complaining that he's a very uh, enthusiastic uh, biohacker and student of progressive health. And he was saying that uh, he was living near a cell tower, he discovered. And so he had to move because he freaked out and he blamed it on a lot of his illnesses and maladies that he had during the three-year time that he lived near the cell tower. And he asked Dr. Lipton, look, what if I um, you know, took these insights and said, okay, I'm going to believe that the cell tower doesn't bother me, even though there's all this data and scientific research supporting that. Uh, will that work? And the doctor said, no, it won't work because you still deep down, are not congruent with whatever thing you just spouted out of your mouth. Like, hey, I'm going to form the belief that smoking's uh, not bad for me and not worry about it at all. Uh, so that's uh, deep down in your subconscious, you're not congruent with that. So it's not magical, puffy the magic dragon where you can uh, say, okay, I am going to form the intention to make $10 million and then it's going to go happen for me. I'm going to manifest it. I'm going to call it in and be one with the universe uh, of wealth and abundance. And if Raise your hand if that's worked for you so far. Uh, but on a different note, if you start to uncover some of these blocks and things you have with your wealth mindset, great books about that, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where you deep down feel like you don't deserve it, you don't even realize it because it's subconscious programming, you are going to very likely struggle and suffer accordingly. Conversely, if you are able to form these deep-seated beliefs that money is just an exchange medium and it gives you power and freedom to make the world a better place and that you absolutely deserve it and you're freaking worth it and all those great things, and then you wake up the next morning and you're congruent with that belief and those new values, that's when you start sending out the emails and the phone calls saying, oh, by the way, I'm doubling my consulting rate because I'm worth it. And if you don't like it, I'll find a new client. And then you're off and running, man. You're headed there. Fun stuff. So back to the concept of longevity. Uh, I strongly believe these notions to be true. Uh, I read the book. I'm captivated by it. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to go with it. So just by forming the intention that I intend to live to be 123, so when I'm 61 and a half, I'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm hit the halfway point rather than uh, thinking that that's the two-third point. Those are good feelings deep down inside 
and uh, knowing that you have a lot of time left. So that was just a, a side, a long aside from Jim's note here that he's going to build his dream house and hope to hang out there for the next 45 years. I have full expectation that this will, this will happen for you. And this wasn't even the, uh, the topic of his note. So now get to the meat of it. He says, I do short lap swims in the pond in the summer. Is there anything wrong with short swims in the winter as a form of cold water therapy? Most of the chatter I hear, pun intended, is primarily where people are just hanging out in the water. In my case, I'm sitting in a chest freezer. I can't really swim in a, a 15 cubic foot box. So anyway, Jim says, what do you think? Is anyone actually swimming for cold therapy? And thanks for the great podcast. All right. Thanks for leaving a review, bud. Very interesting because I noticed this is totally outside of science, but it feels like it's perhaps easier for me to just sit in the chest freezer and breathe through my 20 deep diaphragmatic breath cycles, and I get to 20, and I know I'm getting out, but I'm completely still. And when I try to go swim, even in water that's much warmer, like swimming in Tahoe in 50-degree water, it feels like I can't even last as long. I get uh, more difficulty dealing with the cold when I'm trying to exert myself in the cold. So that's neither here nor there. And swimming laps in the winter is a fantastic form of cold water therapy. Uh, I did a whole show on this on Get Over Yourself podcast talking about what I feel to be are the most profound benefits of my morning cold regimen. And one of them is from Dr. Rhonda Patrick uh, citing this research that uh, even as short as a 20-second exposure to 40-degree Fahrenheit water will stimulate these hormonal bursts that give you that wake-up, that energetic uh, sensation from jumping into cold water or taking a cold shower. Now, 40 is pretty cold for a shower, I guess, in some places. I'm sure that pond's getting down to 40 in the winter in Ohio. So even a brief dip in the water, as we know from the 800-year-old practice in Finland of jumping in the freezing cold lake and then running back into the sauna, those short bursts of cold exposure are enough to spike the wonderful mood-elevating hormone norepinephrine for up to an hour, spike it 200 to 300% above baseline. So that brief exposure to cold, you can probably reference this if you've ever jumped in the cold ocean in the winter or jumped in the river after your uh, long-distance run and you feel awakened and alive and energized. So short term exposure to cold has wonderful hormonal benefits. And then the other part of it, back to Jim's idea of swimming in the winter, and my intention, I'm stating it right now for the public, haven't really talked about this much, but with my recent move to Lake Tahoe, my goal is to swim there every single day year-round that I'm present uh, there rather than traveling. And that includes all winter, even if I have to take snowshoes to get to the lake shore. I'm going to go swimming in that lake. Gets down to the uh, mid-40s in the winter and should be no problem. So just the psychological benefits on uh, focusing, stress tolerance, increased resilience to all other forms of stress in daily life, I point out those as probably the most profound benefits of my cold water therapy regimen, uh, along with the hormonal benefits, of course. So good luck, and how about going in every single day, man, for the next 45 years? Why not? Enjoy your dream house. Thank you so much for these nice, interesting uh, colorful notes and questions. So here comes Paul. He was traveling, listening to a podcast, and a guest advised to never eat pork that isn't grass-fed. I eat Durick and Berkshire, but they are not totally raised on grass. I can't find any that are. Am I misinterpreting something? 
Well, yes. Interestingly, pigs and chickens are not labeled grass-fed because these animals don't just eat grass. They are natural omnivores designed to eat a little bit of everything. So we will call it a pastured chicken or a pastured or free-range pork rather than grass-fed. Then when it comes to beef, lamb, buffalo, bison, you see grass-fed because these animals can live their lives eating just grass. Nice, clean, nutritious food. Definitely make the effort to limit your meat consumption to 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised, and stay away from the feedlot animals. And then we can have more agreement between the whole food plant-based voices that are so concerned about the future of the planet and the destruction of the planet caused by feedlot farming and factory animals, and then the people who are in the ancestral space realizing that uh, the animal foods are the most nutritious ones on the planet, and they have sustained human evolution for two and a half million years. Probably good reason to eat them due to the nutritional benefits, and if we can find animals that were sustainably raised and harvested, then we can reconcile with our beliefs that we want to uh, protect the planet and not destroy it. And by the way, factory farming causing a lot of damage too. So uh, when we're going for organic produce, locally grown, staying local, staying fresh, all those things can give us thumbs up points uh, for sustainability, not just in the meat category. David writes in, friend of the world-famous Pete Keynes, reading the book Primal Endurance for the second or third time. What a nice compliment. Thank you. Hopefully I can entertain you with the little tidbits here and there, keeping it real, keeping it fresh. I planned on doing three months or more of aerobic-based training. However, I have a big old 50-mile mountain bike race at Folsom Lake. A 50-mile mountain bike race? That sounds crazy, man. That is a long day out there. That's like at least 100 miles on the road, right? From the trails, the strain of up and down and all that stuff. So he's asking, what's the best approach here? Just to cruise it and stay at my maximum aerobic heart rate limit of 132 or have fun and go for it? Uh, The big goal coming up in uh, future months is to qualify for the uh, world championships at 70.3 triathlon. At CDL, is that Coeur d'Alene? They're hosting the world championships. How cool. Anyway, so when you have a race, should you stay uh, at the aerobic heart rate or not? (laughs) Does Brad give you permission to just go for it and have fun? Brad gives you permission to go for it and have fun. A race is a special occasion where you're driving out there, in this case, uh, getting on the starting line with a bunch of other enthusiastic athletes, competing, looking at the results getting timed, having it on the internet, talking to your fellow training partners and competitors about the race. So it's kind of a bad time to uh, put a heart rate beeper alarm on there and dawdle along while people are passing you and saying, on your left, on your right. Yeah. Otherwise, why do the race? Just stay home and do a workout. And I think this uh, notion is commonly misinterpreted when people get all into the math training approach, the primal endurance approach of strictly limiting that heart rate, building a base properly, all these notions where we're trying to control you and regulate your unbridled competitive intensity. But on race day, that is the time to go for it. 
in training and the patterns of training that you engage in, that's where we have this strong emphasis to tone things down and respect the difference between an aerobic training session and one that drifts out of the aerobic maximum heart rate limit and gets into a little bit of anaerobic stimulation. And when you do that as a pattern over and over for weeks on end, you're just unregulated with your heart rate, that's when you have a high probability of drifting into breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. It doesn't mean that once in a while you can't unleash the dragon and go stimulate a fitness adaptation. A race is the best time to do that or a workout. So if you're training for a marathon and it's six months from now and you go out there and you do a couple 10Ks and a half marathon race, Uh, over the ensuing months, those things are going to have a dramatic improvement in your fitness. They're going to stimulate fitness improvement because they're uh, challenging, they're high intensity, they're way beyond aerobic maximum. Then you resume uh, your greatest return on investment over the long run is to build, build, build that aerobic base. It's less stressful and it'll be more applicable to the challenge of, let's say, uh, an ultra distance race running a marathon or doing the 70.3 triathlon that David uh, references. So we're talking about training patterns that are low stress and aerobic emphasis interspersed with occasional peak performance efforts that stimulate a massive fitness improvement. Makes sense? Glenn from Norway writing in with all kinds of details about his wonderful clean living life up there, very careful with his food choices, very precise with his training methods, and pretty deep into this stuff, man. I'm training seven days a week, about 10 hours a week. Uh, Try not to lose too much time with a girlfriend and very young children and uh, wanting to improve his biking, uh, talking a lot about uh, his dietary concerns interspersed with his training. Um, I'm always hungry for food, but at the same time, I feel I'm eating too much. (laughs) So uh, here's this diet, and he's slamming food all day long, a lot of carbs, We're having the muesli, banana, and yogurt in the morning. We're having a second breakfast of oatmeal porridge, uh, low-fat milk, carrot, slices of bread, cheese, caviar, crisp bread, bell pepper, banana, chicken, fish, rice, pasta, eggs, mackerel. Pretty darn healthy, man. I mean, I'm not going to say it's uh, primal aligned. You're not getting keto bonus points. But when you look at the big picture, can this guy live a healthy life up there in Norway eating these various and assorted foods? with uh, a lot of nutritional benefits listed, some of it just empty calories, right? The grains, as we know. But interesting perspective to see how much this guy is working out, um, how interested he is in in doing it right and monitoring his heart rate and doing his zones and then uh, throwing in a lot of food. Uh, So generally, since you're writing into this show and we're so on board with the ancestral approach, which is emphasizing things like fasting, eating in a compressed time window, and eliminating the uh, low nutrition processed carbohydrates that do very little except for stimulate insulin uh, or restock glycogen from your ambitious training methods. And speaking of that, when you're exercising this much and doing so much uh, of the workouts at higher intensity than aerobic maximum, it appears. Well, then you're into this uh, carbohydrate dependency paradigm where you're burning a lot of energy in training and you're replacing a lot of energy with uh, the assorted meals and snacks. Uh, He's not overweight. He's, um, let's see, about six feet tall, 
and 67 kilos is 134 uh 150, 150 pounds. So he's a, a lean, mean guy. So it's working for him. You're probably experiencing minimal uh, adverse effects from the level of carbohydrate intake that you're consuming. Of course, as many uh, primal endurance and ancestral living enthusiasts uh, know, there may be some tremendous uh, potential improvements in your uh, health, energy, and peak performance from transitioning over to a more ancestral-aligned diet and maybe monitoring the heart rate to uh, minimize those in-between workouts that are uh, not considered uh, sprint or high-intensity but not considered aerobic either. And that leads to the um, the closing question here. Do you have any tips to get faster on the bike? I have two to four hours a week available. I do a lot of hard stuff like eight times five minutes. Should I do some more restitution workouts because I'm going so hard so frequently? So, yeah, man, and then call me back when you're uh, 51 because some of this stuff uh, might be working at age 31, uh, but it's unsustainable. There's too much uh, strenuous exercise in here and, of course, uh, needing to uh, consume calories throughout the day because I didn't. I read through this quickly, but it's like uh, breakfast, second breakfast, snack, lunch, another snack, dinner, evening meal. So uh, you're a carb-burning machine, and my overarching uh, suggestion to you would be to tone down the workout intensity, save some of those true peak performance sessions where you really push yourself, and if you want to get faster on the bike, uh, go fast on the bike once in a while. Hit it hard when you're feeling motivated and energized and your legs feel great, but the rest of the time, Oh my goodness, slow down, just pedal, enjoy yourself, and try to uh, eliminate some of those nutrient-deficient foods from the diet, and in return, maybe you're grabbing uh, more eggs, more mackerel, uh, more of the good stuff. How's that sound? Good luck. Thank you for writing in from Finland. Oh my gosh, we have what? Wales, Ohio, Finland, San Francisco Bay Area. We're all coming together by pushing a single button on our podcast app and maybe pushing that other button, it goes to 1.5 speed. When people do 1.5 speed, it's possible to miss a little bit when the podcast is so intense and packed with information. So please turn it down to, okay, you can keep it at 1.5 and that'll be fun. Matt Carroll says, hey man, I love all your podcasts. I've been doing math training for about six months. Absolutely love it. However, uh-oh, dun, 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 and this is written in yellow highlight. My pace is not getting any faster. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't eat sugar. <laughs> I'm keto and I do most all the right things, but I'm losing faith. Does it take this long? Sometimes it does, Matt. Um, I'm going to guess you're probably pretty fit starting out because the research, especially Phil Maffetone talks about this a lot. If you're coming from uh, uh, unfit status where you're just getting out the door and starting to walk around the block and monitor your math heart rate. You can make these massive leaps and bounds improvements in a very short time where your pace goes from 16 minutes and 37 seconds per mile down to 14.28, down to 13.15. Uh, so great. But if you're already uh, a fit athlete and you're doing math training for six months and your pace per mile for a math test, let's say it's a two-mile math test, maybe you're already down at 
nine minutes a mile or 830 or something, those incremental improvements are going to take patience and continued devotion to building the aerobic system. That said, because I don't want to be sending people off uh, still frustrated and still shaking their head. If you're feeling like you've hit a plateau and you're not improving as quickly as you wish, go ahead and uh, open up the throttle once in a while and stimulate a fitness breakthrough with a strenuous uh, long duration or and or high intensity session. Uh, so my favorite one uh, for running was uh, back in the old days, uh, six times three minutes at anaerobic threshold with 30 second jog between the three minute sessions. A very, very difficult workout. Uh, warming up for 20 minutes, cooling down for 20 minutes. So you have a kind of a uh, long duration run and you're just working that anaerobic threshold with those brief 30 second opportunities to back off and then maintain a nice crisp fast pace every time you hit it hard for three minutes. Then you can pair that with whatever the next seven or eight or 10 sessions that are just aerobic in nature uh, for three or four days after. You're just going to be going slower and shorter than your normal baseline uh, aerobic sessions, and that's called recovery. That's called absorbing and benefiting from the hard work that you just did. But yeah, it's okay to throw in some uh, challenging workouts now and then, especially when you're getting frustrated. So I'll confirm that feeling frustrated is a very important element that we have to address. We don't want to be out there incongruent with what we're doing and wondering and doubting and feeling frustrated. So uh, get through that with some nice (laughs) ego-boosting, satisfying efforts where you push yourself and then uh, recommit to the tremendous patience and restraint of competitive intensity that are required when you're uh, building up your aerobic pace. But I just fielded another email recently from someone uh, talking about this and how they're uh, working, working, working toward a big goal of breaking uh, the magical four-hour mark in the marathon and talking about, I'm going to introduce a couple speed workouts a week. I'm going to do some uh, some strength training, some, some explosive jumps, uh, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, hey, we got to take a few steps back here. If your goal, if your main athletic goal is an ultra endurance performance, whether that be a 70.3 Ironman or a marathon or an ultra marathon on the trails or even a two or three hour uh, triathlon event, these are ultra distance efforts. These are extreme endurance efforts, even though our perspective is all distorted because we're seeing people that are doing the, uh, what about this guy? I just heard about this guy that did 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days. Crazy stuff. So that's pretty ultra, 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 ultra. But in terms of the physiology and the relative contribution of the aerobic system and the anaerobic system to an event uh, lasting for even just two hours, that's a 98% aerobic event. So what I'm trying to say is if your goal is to go break a four-hour marathon, the return on investment from heading to the track on Tuesday night and running 800-meter uh, repeats or 400-meter repeats or anything of the sort is pales in comparison to just getting more and more and more efficient at your long, slow runs. Why is that? Because the track workout uh, is strenuous and has a tremendous cost 
to energy expenditure and recovery. Yes, you're going to be working your oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers, and when your slow twitch fibers go at mile 22, your body's going to do whatever it takes to get to the finish line of the marathon, and that includes firing those oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers just to run really slow and shuffle along. So some of that high-intensity training does have a direct application to ultra-endurance performance like a marathon. We got a question coming up, uh, compare and contrasting the primal endurance approach to Brian McKenzie's CrossFit endurance approach, which has those explosive things in there. So we're going to reconcile that. But for the purposes of answering this question, those, those workouts do stimulate a fitness adaptation, but the energy cost, the recovery cost is not worth it compared to just getting a little faster and stronger on your typical two-hour training session, okay? So do more of those, do them better, do them at high quality, recover properly, and realize that that's where leaps and bounds uh, improvement can be gained because of the fact you're going for four hours. If you wrote in and said, hey, I'm trying to go from a two-hour and 30-minute marathon down into the teens, uh, do you think I should do some high-intensity training? Uh, yeah, because you're trying to run five minute miles for 26 straight miles. But if you're just shuffling along and your last marathon, the final 10K took an hour and seven minutes, we're going to get that time back down to an hour just by getting really good at jogging and training. Got me? Good. Ah, here comes the fat man. That's his subject line, not mine. Uh, Michael, uh, raising his fist and high-fiving Mark Sisson as uh, a fellow Williams College graduate alum. Uh, my coach ran with Mark back in the old days, and this guy was a uh, a strong runner, Michael, 415 high school miler, 5450 for 10 miles in high school, and 25 flat on a hilly New England course in college for five miles. So this guy was in there, man. He was in the mix. But guess what? The years have not been kind. Who can relate to Michael's note right now? I ride my fat bike every single day. Uh, kind of like, feels like a nice run. But somehow, some way, I've gone from 145 pounds in college when he was dropping those times to 230 now. Hmm, let's add that up in our head. That's a gain of 85 pounds. Have you ever worn a 25-pound weight vest? Oh my gosh, it changes everything. If you're trying to go do a workout with a 25-pound weight vest on, now think about 85 pounds. Yeah, so we got to get this handled. No fun, no bueno. And besides that, life is hectic with four kids. So we got to get some of that weight off to help you chase around those four kids and engage and be a participatory parent, right? He also says, I don't respond well to small goals. That's why I'm talking talking some heat right now. I'm teeing you up. So one of the things he has in mind is the uh, Williams College Alumni Cross Country Race. wonder if Mark's ever done that. I want to finish that at a non-embarrassing pace. I need some coaching. Uh, it would be a great case study if we could pull it off. Um, I appreciate your approach to training uh, combined with some uh, keto-friendly eating makes a lot of sense to me, and I think I would respond well to it. Thanks for any advice you can give. So 
Hmm. So he's already identified his personality attribute that he doesn't respond well to small goals. And I totally respect that. And I know some people have to uh, kind of do this all or nothing approach where they really throw down and make huge commitments. And if that works for you, that's great. I think other people might get discouraged, intimidated, uh, and distracted if the goal is too big or too far away. And so for some people, a lot of people I've coached and counseled, especially in corporate environment when I was doing corporate wellness, it was so difficult to elicit behavior change and habit change that I set the bar so ridiculously low just so we could come back the following week and I could tease the person about it that they still haven't done it. So I'd say like, can you walk for one minute around the west wing of the lower floor here uh, as an exercise goal uh, and do it every day uh, for a week. (laughs) What, that's it? Just walk around? Uh, Okay. And then we check in and they they didn't do it. So they didn't take it seriously enough. Maybe it was too uh, low of a bar. But then if you ask someone to get to the gym once or twice a week, they can't do that either because they're too busy. So we're stuck with this challenge of uh, pursuing perfectly ideally appropriate goals that we can just default into and enjoy it, not feel stressed about it, not feel intimidated or discouraged, but significant enough so that they uh, support lifestyle change. And boy, I think that first step is the hardest. So if you can make a commitment such as to uh, do a morning uh, stretching flexibility mobility routine, like I have on my YouTube video, I think it's called Brad Kern's Morning Routine, and I made this commitment to myself. It's now gone on uh, two and a half years where every single morning I said, you know what, I'm going to take five minutes and devise this custom routine that helps with my uh, hamstring, hip flexor, uh, lower back flexibility, mobility, because I was getting uh, tight and stiff and uh, minor injuries too much from sprinting. And I realized it's because I was living uh, this routine lifestyle, doing aerobic exercise, doing whatever, and then going out and blasting the doors off once a week with a sprint workout. So now when I start my day with this 12-minute session of pretty strenuous uh, core exercises on the ground where I'm doing these scissoring and leg swinging and holding my legs off the ground for the entire duration of the sequence, um, it puts me at a higher uh, launching pad, a higher baseline platform from which to launch these sprint workouts because that is a nice uh, commitment and devotion to flexibility mobility, that 12 minutes every single morning. I thought it was five minutes and the first time we filmed it and timed it, it was like, oh my gosh, it's just so easy to do and so fun and so rewarding to have that as the start to my day rather than reaching for my phone and getting into 12 minutes of nonsense. So Michael, in your case, because you have that wonderful athletic background and you have deep down inside the body of the athlete, the elite runner is still there, I would suggest doing something like uh, making a firm commitment to get out the door every single day and do what qualifies as an aerobic workout for you right now. And at 2.30, I'm going to imagine that's a really slow jog slash walk just to put the time in on the road and return to that former mindset where you were an automatic, you were a habitual runner that was so driven by these peak performance goals and in top shape. So getting out the door and doing something every single day toward your return to your uh, deep down running athlete, that would be a great goal. And then the, uh, the months will go by quickly and there you'll be on the starting line at the Williams College Alumni Cross Country Race in October. Here comes Emily. It must have been my lucky day when I stumbled across the Primal Endurance podcast in the podcast sphere several weeks ago. I've 
binged listened since then to over 60 episodes and still going, and I've become a convert to the MAF aerobic emphasis training. My question is, can one reap the full benefits of math training without going fully keto? The answer is yes. Okay, let's continue to read her story here. Oh, by the way, so the Primal Endurance podcast uh, is no longer publishing new episodes, but it's uh, there for your taking uh, forever, right? Everything's in perpetuity now, even all the silly YouTube videos that you upload. So you can listen to all the episodes, 100 plus episodes that we recorded over several years, all relating to the challenges of endurance training and supporting our comprehensive primal endurance movement. Learn more at primalendurance.fit and you can grab those podcasts. Uh, but the new episodes, everything is going into the single primal blueprint podcast channel. So you will see endurance related shows on that channel labeled accordingly, uh, keto related shows and then general healthy living uh, with the various uh, hosts and formats. So we have our uh, Mark Stanley Apple posts that are narrated. Those are up there in case you're too busy to read. And we have L. Russ doing these wonderful feature-length interviews and then me covering my shows of particular uh, content matter, usually relating to endurance and keto and other fun stuff. So Emily's wondering, do I have to go fully keto? No, because the training, you see, the training is basically uh, repeatedly emptying your glycogen tanks. And you have to refill those tanks with carbohydrates to recover from training. Uh, we know that we're better at that when we're keto and we don't need to slam our face with carbs after every workout like we thought in the old days. But you have more leeway when you're not fully stocked with glycogen all the time. Remember that ketosis will not even initiate until liver glycogen levels are low, as well as blood insulin, as well as blood glucose. So these this environment that's required for ketosis is something that occurs frequently in the physiology of the hard training athlete because you're uh, depleting your energy stores uh, on, a, on a difficult workout or a string of workouts. So Emily is 30 and she's been doing a strict 20-4 intermittent fasting for over three years. Whoa, baby, that is tight. That means you're probably starting your first meal at... Uh, maybe 1 p.m. and finishing at 5 p.m. So you're fasting 20 hours and eating in a four-hour window. Yeah, and doing it for three years. Wow. And she says, it's the best thing I've ever done. Maybe adopting the mafetone, the aerobic uh, training method, is the second best. Nice. Uh, so by doing so, I believe that I'm reasonably fat adapted. I believe so too, if you can fast for 20 hours every single day. Also, Emily can go on a 20-kilometer run. Uh, sorry about the metric. I'm not from the U.S., obviously. I don't know where she's from, but we have another international. Very nice, very nice. So she can go run 12 miles while fasted for 20-plus hours without much trouble. While I fully appreciate the benefits of keto, going strict high-fat, low-carb is just not the easiest thing for me. I'm not a sugar addict or anything, but I do like my bread and pasta when I break my fast every day. Oh, so that's really interesting too, right? If you're fasting for 20 hours every single day, you are getting so many of the benefits of autophagy, apoptosis, uh, anti-inflammatory, uh, fat, accelerated fat burning, accelerated ketone production, all kinds of stuff. And so if you want to go have bread and pasta in that four-hour window, 
you know it's not giving you uh, dense nutritional benefit, but so what? You're burning fat for 20 hours every single day. So this is a good uh, awakening for people who are splitting hairs and wondering about their, their cheat days and their patterns. If you just bank all that time, you bank all those fasted hours, when you enjoy yourself and uh, have those meals and celebratory times, yes, enjoying your bread and pasta is A-OK. So, Emily, continuing, the podcast has really changed my attitude toward endurance training. I don't feel terrible anymore. Uh, (laughs) I don't feel terrible if I haven't completely thrashed my body at training. That's uh, a lot of negatives in there. But what she's saying is, um, you know, that, that mindset where you have to torture yourself, you have to exhaust yourself to get that sense of well-being and that sense of satisfaction is gone, realizing that being patient and building the aerobic base and feeling uh, energized and refreshed after a workout rather than trash is actually the most direct path to improvement, enjoyment, healthy living, health and balance. It feels kind of weird, but amazing to still be fully functional around the house after training instead of being a useless piece of SHI blank T because I was so spent from tapping into my overreaching zone day in and day out. What a cool, interesting message. Here comes Jeff with a quick comment. Thanks for what you do. I'm just a regular guy who works out a lot and tries my best to take care of myself. Just wondering, what kind of blue glasses do you use and what UV negative ion filter do you use? Well, uh, I've tried out Swannies. They have a nice website and a good following in the ancestral community. I've tried out the UVEX glasses that you can get on Amazon for only 10 bucks, and I have a tendency to lose things or want another pair laying around. So the UVEX, you can buy like a three pack. That's pretty cool. For the negative ion generating air filter, I grabbed these awesome towers of power on Amazon called Envion Therapure. E-N-V-I-O-N Therapure, T-H-E-R-A-P-U-R-E. And it's a big tower of power with a whole bunch of different settings and functions removes mold, germs, bacteria, viruses, common allergens with a high-powered air filter. And it also has the uh, negative ion generator, the ionizer. And what this does is it, uh, it generates electrically charged air molecules into the airspace, uh, energizing the air in a literal uh, manner. So the machine is pumping out what's called negative ions. So we have negative ions, negatively charged air particles, which uh, carry energy and energize the human. And then in contrast, we have positive ions, which you find in enclosed spaces with poor circulation or in polluted air in urban environments. So the positive to negative ion ratio in a smoggy, crowded city is going to be weighted in the positive ion. And the word positive is just the, uh, the chemical description. So it's it's a bad thing to have positive ions, okay, and a negative ion generating machine. So if you're getting an air filter, you always want it to have an ionizer as well. And then it'll spit out these negative ions that actually make you more energetic inside the uh, office or uh, bedroom or wherever you're using the machine. Uh, this was 
discovered the power of negative ions was discovered back in the astronaut days, where these highly trained, super fit astronauts would go do their uh, test performances inside the space capsule. So they're locking themselves into a, a small metal box for a 10-hour test run or what have you, and they reported uh, strained sensations of fatigue that were unexplainable due to their high fitness level and great preparation. And they finally started to... Uh, charge the air inside the space capsule with negative ions and the astronauts did better. Uh, so where are the most negative ions produced in nature? In wide open, windy, or mountainous areas or near large bodies of water. So water generates negative ions. Falling or cascading water generates tremendous levels of negative ions. That's why you feel so good when you jump in the shower and you cascade water over your body or you stand under a waterfall, powerful, energized area. Uh, same with a windy mountain peak. There's a lot of negative ions floating through a windy area or uh, high elevation areas. So you're trying to approximate what's happening in nature. And from a chemical chemistry standpoint, these negative ions that are coming out of this little machine are no different than the ones that are generated from when you're walking uh, by Yosemite Falls and feeling the mist. A really cool health practice. I learned a lot about this in a great book called The Tao of Health, Sex, and Longevity by Daniel Reed. So you can maybe Google the term negative ions and learn all about it and then learn about the positive ions where the reason you might feel so tired after a long road trip is the de-energized air particles inside your enclosed metal box known as a vehicle. Yeah, wild stuff. So we have this machine is also spitting out uh, UV light, so it's uh, cleaning and removing allergens from the airspace. So you have a UV generator for purification, you have the negative ion generator, and you have the powerful air filter. And perhaps my favorite feature of using uh, such a machine is the white noise benefit. So your sleeping quarters becomes a chamber of isolation from the offensive outside noises, and it's my cue to help me fall asleep. I love cranking this thing up. So this Envion Therapure, I think it was uh, over 100 bucks, maybe 125 bucks, and you can get a less expensive uh, Holmes air filter that actually fits on a desktop. I've used several of those over the years, and look around study it, but the main thing you want to look for if you're shopping online or in a store is you need the ionizer. So not just an air filter, not just a HEPA air filter, uh, high efficiency particulate something, right? So HEPA is a good uh, designation to have that the, has a strong air filter, uh, but you also want this ionizer feature for sure. What a show. We went everywhere, all over the world, all over the topic map. Thank you for listening. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too per- so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? 
she's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, on. she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so you know that's completely genuine, and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.